Elspeth's going to come read to us. Good luck, Elspeth. Cheer her on. I'm going to, you want to put it in there? Yeah, okay. Sorry, everybody. Sorry, man. I'll try my best. All right, and I'm going to stand here for moral support. Oh, <laughs> wow. <laughs> I can, Jim, you know what? While she reads, I'm going to cuddle with you. You go, girl. Jim and I are going to be back here enjoying some man time. Cigars and bourbon or something back here. I don't know. I'm sorry. So, this is Genesis 14. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariak, king of Elisar, Ketelamur, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goiam. These kings made war with Thera, king of Sodom, Birsha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and king of Bela, that is Zor. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Ketelamur, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Ketelamar and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Canaram, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shaveh Kiriathim, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran on the borders of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the countries of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who were dwelling in. Hazazan Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim, with Ketelamur, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidon was full of bitumen pits, and all as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah near north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot and his, with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Ketelamur and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram, by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. 
But Abram said to king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten, and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkel, and Mamre take their share. This is the word of the Lord. What do you think? What's your initial thought as you read the chapter? Lots of names. Let's go to the next chapter. Anything else jump out at you? I read this chapter and I think to myself, this has all the makings for a great movie. Oh, yeah. I mean, you've got all the elements going on in this. In this. We're going to look at them in a minute. But, yeah, it's a movie. I feel like sometimes we watch so many movies and we have so many more movies that we have access to that we don't often take enough time to let our, our minds engage with the text in a way that allows us to see what's really happening. And as I did that this week, I'm like, man, this is a fantastic movie. Like, this, this could be like the sequel to chapter 13. Like, this is perfect. But before we get there, before we move on to that, I want to give you just a, we got to take a second, just a little quick behind the scenes, because ultimately this little movie is about two things this morning. It's about two wars, not really one. It's about two battles. It's about an outward battle and an inward battle. It's about a physical battle that Abram faces and a heart battle that Abram faces. So here's what we're going to see this morning in this war story. We're going to see God's victory in Abram's outward battle, and then we're going to see God's victory in Abram's inward battle. So there's two fights going on here, one inside of Abram, one outside of Abram. One inside of him and one outside of him. And we're going to start with the outward battle. We're going to start with the outward one. What takes place um, on the battlefield And how God gives Abram the victory. So point number one is this. God's victory in Abram's outward battle. So if this were an actual movie, I imagine the opening scene of the movie would be kind of like, all I can think of is Robin Hood. You know, where the whole town is gathered around this huge, massive bonfire. And and, and the the leader, their, their mayor, their Robin Hood is there rallying the troops. It's time for a rebellion. I don't know if you see some of the key words that make this such a good movie. Uh, verse 4 tells us that for 12 years, these people have been under the oppression of King, I'm going to call him, uh, how did I write it down? Cheddar. Elspeth said cheater. didn't say it this way, but I like the word cheddar because it's more fun. Cheddar Leomir. So Cheddar Leomir has them under oppression. That means for, four, for 12 years, he's been coming and plundering their stuff, probably taking their kids, taking their crops, um, taxing them. And so at year 12, they say enough is enough. And they say it's time now to form. Maybe if you look at verse 4, we've got, they re, they're going to they rebel against them. And they're going to uh, go at these, this king and try to take back their freedom. So that's how this whole story begins to unfold. This rally cry of, of we want to be free. And so they have allies that they form, and they end up going to battle against another group of kings and allies. So you end up with this four against five kings going at it. That's what verse 9 tells us. And this war begins, and I'm not exactly sure what these uh, 
Buterman pits were, but you've got action, you've got battle, you've got people fleeing. They're, they're getting stuck in this tar, falling down and tripping into these holes. And, and the battle is fierce, and it goes on and on and on. But the, the peak of the story, as we look at it as readers, doesn't really happen until verse 11. So in verse 11, we kind of get the, 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 the conclusion. This is probably like an hour into the movie, 45 minutes into the movie. So the enemy, it says, took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. So we read verse 11 and we go, no, Sodom got taken captive. All their stuff, all their people, gone. And then the reader goes, wait a minute, we know something, but somebody who's, who's in Sodom, oh no, from, from, the, from last week's movie, we remember that Sodom is where Lot ended up going. So what happens to Lot? And so he tells us Lot is taken captive. Lot is our first prisoner of war, and off he goes. And then it says, in verse 13, that someone escapes this battle, and they go to Abram, who is a Hebrew, really the first time he's called a Hebrew, who was living in the Oaks of Mamre, and they told him that your kinsman, Lot, has been taken prisoner of war. Now, imagine your Lot. Imagine your Abram. Sorry, imagine your Abram, and you get this news. I'm thinking a lot of things other than go rescue, right? I'm thinking I gave Lot a choice. Lot, you pick wherever you want to go. Guess he chose poorly. <laughs> Sorry, dude. Bad luck. I may also think to myself, uh, God is sovereign. He's in control of all of these things. So God led him there, and now he's a prisoner of war. That's, that's his deal. That's God's sovereignty over his life. I might also think, hey, when bad people hang out with bad times and bad places, bad stuff happens. I have somebody who says it all the time. Don't go with stupid people to stupid places at stupid times, and you'll stay out of trouble. You could have thought that. Like, hey, you know what? You should have left, dude. There was bad stuff happening. We know that from chapter 13, so you shouldn't have been with them. If you weren't with them, you wouldn't be in the situation that you find yourself in. He could also be thinking about God's justice. You know what? Maybe Lot got himself into some stuff he shouldn't have, and God's just kind of bringing the justice down on him, right? A little correction because he was in Sodom, and who knows what he's probably doing. I don't know what he was doing, but this is probably God's justice. Right? I've, got a, I've got a million more excuses as to why. Peace out, Lot. Sorry, dude. Have a good day. Instead, we read the opposite, right? What does Abram do in this story? It's, it really is crazy. He goes and he rescues Lot. He gets his team together, and he rescues them. So look at verse 14. Here's what it says. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them as, and pursued them to Hoboth, north of Damascus, then he brought back all his possessions, all the possessions, and also brought back his kinsman, Lot, with his possessions and the women and the people. So this is our first, like, this is the first record of war anywhere in history. And we've got our first prisoner of war being safely extracted out of the hands of the enemy. 
I mean, this is high action. This is high drama that's going on in this story. So Abram's got these 318 guys that are trained. Now, some say they were trained like in hand-to-hand combat, but it's, it's more likely that they were trained just physical training, meaning they were in good shape. And the reason they conclude that is the distance they ran before they actually got to Lot was the same as if we started running right now all the way to Ocean City. That's the distance, if I did my math right. So that means these 318 guys got together with Abram. and They said, all right, we're going to go get Lot. Let's, let's start pursuing the enemy. Imagine if we, all right, let's go. We're, we're running to Ocean City together. <laughs> yeah. So, so these, these dudes were in shape. And in shape enough, when they got there, they were able to subdue the enemy when they got there. So Abram's got a pretty good plan here. He decides to go at night. We'll do a little stealth thing. I mean, like you said, you got to see the drama. Like, they get there after days of running, and they're, you know, they're stopping to get water and killing animals for food and building fire, and then finally they get there, and, and Lot's fearful for his life, and then finally they come upon them, and they're like, shh, we're going to do this at night, and they split up, and they divide, and, and it's dark, and then they come in, and they, they do an ambush, extract Lot with all of his stuff, the helicopters, and you're pulling him out. <laughs> Sorry, I jumped ahead a little bit in time. But there's action, man. They're pulling out and all of his stuff and all of their things. See, they're, they're literally taking everything. 318 guys are grabbing everything they can get their hands on. And Lot and his possessions and his families and their women and all their people. And then they're like, oh, we're out of here. And they take off and have to come back. Another trip from Ocean City all the way back to here. So this, is, this is really is high drama. This is action. This is an incredible, really incredible rescue Story And so Abram really comes back now, the king of kings. I mean, these are probably more like town mayors. It would almost be like when you see the five to four war, it's probably more like if, if Mount Airy and uh, Monrovia and Newmarket got together to fight Gaithersburg and Damascus and Clarksville. Like that's, it was probably more like town mayor, smaller town, go at it together. But the, the drama then ends is with really Abram's on top, right? He's the top dog. He he's now has defeated the winner of the battle. And taking their stuff, and he leaves. So he's, he's the head man. And then the action is pretty much over. The action stops as they return in verse 16 with all this stuff. Now, when you read that story, and you think about that story, you may be wondering why I say point one is God's victory in Abram's outward battle. Why, why is it God's victory? Why am I calling it God's victory? Because it sure seems like Abram was prepared, wasn't he? I mean, Abram gathered the 318 men. Abram trained the men. Abram strategized to divide the men up and knew how to execute this stealth attack at night in order to get Lot rescued. So why is it God's victory? Well, verse 17 tells us why I think this is God's victory. We get a little behind-the-scenes look as to what was really happening in this story. And this behind-the-scenes look comes from a guy named Melchizedek. We're going to talk more about Melchizedek next week. We're going to get really into his life. But this news, this background information comes from Melchizedek. Evidently, he and the king of Sodom meet together in this valley of Sheva, and they have a conversation. And in that conversation, Melchizedek tells us what was really going on. So look at verse 18. And Melchizedek king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. 
And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Isn't that an amazing contrast? I read the whole first thing and I'm like, yeah, war, and they did it, and the fight, and they got the guy out. And then you read Melchizedek's perspective and it's actually God did it. God did the delivering. God is the one who delivered the hand, your enemy into your hand. It really wasn't you. It wasn't the 318 men really at the end of the day. It was God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, who operated more stealth than you did, manipulated the situation to make sure that you got delivered from the hand of your enemy so you could successfully return with Lot and his family. Melchizedek attributes Abram's success really to God most high. God was at work behind the scenes and was the one who delivered them. Now, if we watch verse 16 of this movie, if you will, unfold, as a reader, you may be thinking, you may have thought, like, where, where was his God then? Where, where was Abraham's God? Why didn't we see him? Why did he seem absent in the story? And, and now through Melchizedek, we know that God, he was at work. God was at work. It's important to realize this movie, God wrote the script. God cast the actors. God created the stage. And God is the main character. He's in it all. He's in it all. And so often we can read a story and stop at verse 16 and say, wow, look what happened. And I think often we can do the same thing with our own lives. We kind of see what's happening but we don't realize that God is at work. He's working. And we got to keep reading into verse 17 and 18 to see that, no, God, God is at work. He's the one who is actually doing the delivering in the case of Abram. Without God, there would be no script, there'd be no stage, there'd be no supporting actors. And so the battle here belonged to God. So what do, what do we do with this? What do we take away from this? I just got a couple of of things I was thinking about this week that I think are good for us to apply to our lives. One is obvious, just touched on it, that God alone is the one that delivers us from our enemies. God alone is the one who delivers us from our enemies. From the outside, it appears that Abram is doing the delivering. <laughs> but reality is God's the one who's doing the victory. He's the one that is winning the battle. And if you guys know your Bibles... And we've been together, right? We've studied Joshua and we've studied Judges and all the battles that are in the Old Testament. This is how God always works, right? This is the pattern in Scripture. God is a delivering God. This is who God is. This is what God does. And this little story right here is just a mini version of the greatest prisoner of war rescue story that has ever unfolded. Isn't it? I mean, it's in miniature. But I think it's a little snapshot of the greatest extraction of prisoners of war who found themselves in Sodom and then who were taken off as prisoners and then someone who would leave everyone to come after 
you who would come after Lot to rescue him. I think this is just pointing to Christ, right? Well, hasn't Jesus delivered us from all of our enemies? I mean, this is a picture of what Jesus does for us. Death is delivered into your hands. Sin is delivered into our hands. Satan has been delivered into our hands. They are all destroyed because of Christ, and he is the one that has done the delivering for us. I mean, this is why we're memorizing those verses in Galatians. It's very clear. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham, the blessing of Abraham, see the connection, to Abraham might come to the Gentiles. But notice the first part of that. The first phrase, Christ redeemed us. He delivered us. He rescued us from the curse of the law. What was the curse of the law? It was death. It was death. It was bloodshed. But Christ rescued us from that. He delivered us from that. So that we no longer have to fear death at the hands of our greatest enemies, which really is sin and Satan. We have been delivered and set free. So this story is a little picture of that. It's a little little foreshadowing what's going to come later on in the person of Jesus Christ. The second thing I think we can take from this is I do love it that even though God alone does the delivering, God invites Abram to join him, that they are doing it together. Adam, Abram did train the men. Abram did prepare. He took action. Now, at the end of the day, obviously, it was God that did the work. But God's means to get it done, he did go through a person. He did go through Abram and his man, and his men, to in order to accomplish the mission. And I think this is just, you see this throughout Scripture again, right? If God, God could just, like, send angels... Everything's done. We stand around and watch. I mean, that could have been the way he did it. But instead he uses us. He wants us to join him in what he is doing. He wants us to be part of the drama, part of the movie. And so we are part of it as we keep our eyes open for what's God doing and then join God in those things. We memorize Matthew 28, and we go back to it a lot, but it really fits here. I mean, Jesus begins by saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In other words, I'm in charge of it all. There's going to be a deliverance. I'm going to do it. There's going to be victory. I'm going to do it. I've got the authority to do anything I want to do. And by the way, I have the authority to tell you what to do. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Oh, and behold, I'm going to be with you always to the end of it. I'm going to be with you through it. So that those verses where God tells you and I, go make disciples of people who love Jesus, go make disciples of people who don't know Jesus yet, is sandwiched with, I've got authority, I'll work, and I'm going to be with you when you're doing it. I mean, that, that's Abram, right? I mean, he couldn't see and feel God's presence like we do. We have the Spirit of God in us. But he's calling us the same way. It's like, look, man, go love people for my sake. I give you the authority to do it. I'll be working, and I'm going to be with you the whole time. And that's just how God rolls. And I don't know about you, but I, I, I am more of a get-into-the-game-than-sit-on-the-sidelines kind of person. And I think when the Spirit of God grabs a hold of our hearts, we all feel that. We all feel that, like, I want to be in the game. I want to love people. I want to talk to people about Jesus. I want to encourage them. I want to I bring grace to situations. And Jesus says, you've got the authority to do that because I'm in you and you are in me, and I'm going to be with you. Now go do it. Abram didn't have all that information, all that data, but we do. And I think it's a beautiful opportunity for us then to obey him. Third little thing here, I think takeaway is this. I don't know whether you see it this way or not, but 
as I was reading this, I realized, I wonder if Abram did what he did. Because it's pretty bold to take 318 guys to go after like five other army, four other armies. Like, like you just don't do that, hoping you're going to sneak in and extract your guy and leave with all their stuff. But I wonder if he was clinging to the promises that God had made to him about, you're going to have an offspring, you're going to have kids, you're going to have a heritage, and I'm going to give you all this land. And I can't help but wonder if he was like, well, I haven't had a kid yet. That means I'm not going to die. Let's go to war. <laughs> I, have this, I have this thought of Iron, or uh, not Iron Man, uh, Captain America, right? Because he can't die. I mean, if I knew I, was, I couldn't die, I mean, I would be like running into burning buildings. I would be like looking for bad guys. I would do it all, man. I can't die. So I wonder if in some way this is a reflection of his faith. He's like, hey, God said that he's going to bless those who bless me and curse those who curse me. He says he's going to be with me. He says I'm going to have this heritage. I don't have any kids yet even, so I'm just going to do what I think God's telling me to do. I'm going to go rescue Lot. Let's go do it, man. In fact, let's only do it with 318 of us. Let's do it at night. Let's make it a great scene. Let's, let's do it well. <laughs> I wonder if there's a connection between faith and his actions. How much he really believed God was with him that caused him to move. And I wonder if the same is true for us. The more that we really embrace the reality that you have Christ in you and you are in Christ and you have the power of the Spirit and he says he's going to be with you, the easier it is to do those simple sometimes things of just talking to someone who doesn't know Christ or encouraging them or going out of your way and taking risks in some way that maybe makes you feel a little uncomfortable. We know the end of the story, don't we? Jesus wins. He comes back. We spend eternity on a new earth and in a new heaven forever and ever with no sin. It's going to be the greatest party, celebration, music, creating things, making things, doing things without any sin. That's the end of the story. That builds our faith to go into the battle and do whatever things God has called us to do. So there's point one. God's victory in Abram's outward battle. Let's talk about his inward battle. God's victory in Abram's inward battle. Because there's stuff going on in Abram's soul that we're going to see as he interacts now with this king of Sodom. So look at verse 21 with me. Here's his interaction with the king of Sodom. So the king of Sodom says to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten. It's kind of funny. As opposed to what? Throw it up? <laughs> what the young men have already eaten, and the share of men who went with me. Let Aner, Eskel, and Mamre take their share. So just to understand, there's nothing strange going on in this interaction. It seems like this is what you would do. You would divide up the goods, and, and this is the way that it probably would have gone down when a battle like this had happened. So there's nothing unusual about this interaction, but what is unusual is Abram's response. Abram responds in a very strange way, especially if you contrast how he responds to the king of Sodom to how he responds to Melchizedek. So this is where you gotta, you got to follow track with me. Get, I know if your brain is fried, just take a nap, lie down. 
This is, this is literary stuff. But there's a reason the story is structured the way it is. And it's structured in a strange way. Look, look with me at how the story unfolds. Okay, so verse 17. This section of the story. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, so we got the king of Sodom, he went out to meet him, that's Abram, in the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. And then we get Melchizedek in verse 18. But then look at verse 21. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, this Melchizedek thing is a complete interruption to the train of thought. Do you see that? So if you read it this way, you would read verse 17. They met him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. Verse 21, and the king of Sodom said to Abram. Doesn't that flow? So why are we sticking this Melchizedek thing? You just totally, don't interrupt me when I'm talking. <laughs> right? I mean, that's really what it is. It's like, like what is going on that, that there's this weird Melchizedek thing inserted in the middle? I think one of the reasons is, because the author, Moses, God, wants to make sure that we see the contrast between how he responds, Abram, to Melchizedek, compared to how he responds to the king of Sodom. That's one of the reasons why he's doing this interruption. He wants to make sure that we see the difference in the way that he responds. With Melchizedek, we'll talk about this next week, he's willing to give and receive, right? He's got some bold things to say to the king of Sodom. I mean, he practically insults the king of of Sodom, doesn't he? Look what he says in verse 23. He said, I wouldn't even take a thread from you. <laughs> I brought a thread with me. <laughs> you can't even see it, can you? It's blue. <laughs> you see it, Judah? Kind of. Basically what he's saying is, I mean, you got to imagine all the loot. I mean, the, the millions and millions and d millions of dollars of loot stashed up, and Abram goes, yeah, you know what? I wouldn't even take a thread from you. You can keep your thread. Right? And he says, you know what else? Y your sandals, these are actually, I got these online. These are authentic Egyptian sandals that were probably, <laughs> they said they may have actually been worn by Sarai in the desert. I wouldn't even take, not just your sandal, I wouldn't even take a strap off your sandal. I I want nothing for you. Do you see the repetition of that language in the text? He, he says it very boldly. I would take, I would not take, not, I'm not even going to take a thread or a sandal strap or anything. Verse 24, I will take nothing. He is determined, I am not taking anything from you. You can keep it all. It's all yours. I want nothing to do with it. Now, if I'm Abram, there's an inside battle going on in my heart here a little bit because that's a lot of stuff that he is saying no to. I mean, that's a lot of stuff that he's pushing aside and saying, no, I'm not going to take it. And I think verse 22 reveals that there was a temptation there, and perhaps he knew the temptation was going to come before he even went to battle. So look at verse 22. He says, I have lifted up my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take these things. So at some point, maybe before we went to battle, it's like, okay, I'm going to go to battle. We're going to win. We're going to take back Lot, his stuff, and we're going to take all the other stuff too, and we're going to bring it all back. I wish I could, wish there was a way to visualize how much stuff that was. Like, I don't know, imagine all the stuff you could ever want, ever dream of, all piled up in here, and I said, it could be all yours, and he could have had that. But before even going, Abraham, I think, realized, okay, the temptation here for me to try to get rich off of all this stuff. So I'm going to vow right now to God, I'm not taking any of it. 
I'm not going to take a single thread. I'm not going to take a sandal. I'm not taking nothing except what's in the guy's stomach. So that's it. I'm not taking anything else. And so he makes this vow to God. And we've got to keep in mind that according to the rules, he had the right to the stuff. He earned it. He took the risk. He went after Lot for crying out loud. He should get all of it. All right, he should get some of it. He could have justified taking most of it. I'll use it for the Lord's work. <laughs> I mean, seriously, he could have done a million different things with it, but instead, he turns it down. Before he ever sets an eye on any of the stuff, before he even touches the stuff, smells the stuff, t- counts the stuff, he promises God, I'm not taking any of it. And he tells us why this is such a big deal in verse 23. Why is this such a big deal? So that the king of Sodom can't say, I made you rich. That's it. I mean, this is movie, this is movie material too, isn't it? Somebody's got all the loot. They're like, you can have it all. And he's like, nope, I don't even want, I want nothing from you. I ain't want nothing. You keep it all. <laughs> because there's no way I'm going to let you ever say that I'm rich because of you. There's no way I'm going to let people say, oh, Abram's rich because uh, the king of Sodom gave him his stuff. That's why he's rich. And so Abram's determined, no, only one person is going to get the credit if I'm going to get richer. Only one person. And it's going to be God. It is not going to be you. Now, some of this is probably because he was a corrupt king if he came from Sodom and Sodom was that bad of a place. And some of it was because he was just determined, no way. There's no way man's getting the glory for only God can do in my life. I think Abram was just more concerned about God getting the glory than him getting the riches. And he was more concerned about God getting the credit if he ever does get richer. Sorry. I think Abram was just more concerned about God and God's glory and God's reputation than he was about getting more stuff. So he's determined, if I'm going to get rich, I'm only going to get rich at the hand of God, and only God will get the praise. So we got to ask ourselves then also, why this resolve? Like, why? I mean, there are so many reasons for him to say, I'm going to take the stuff. So why this resolve in his heart? And I think it's because of the theology lesson that he got from Melchizedek. This is his first theology class. And look at verse 19. Look how Melchizedek describes God. God here is God most high, possessor of what? Heaven and earth. Now you got to remember, Abram doesn't have a Bible. Abram doesn't have Bible doctrine by Wayne Grudem. No attributes of God to look at. He has nothing other than a few interactions that he's had face-to-face with God. Not that those are small, but he only knows what God's told him. So this is his first theology class. This is his first introduction to the attributes of God. And God says to him through Melchizedek, this priest king, guess what? There's one God who possesses the heavens and the earth. In other words, he owns it all. And I think that probably helped fuel Abram to say, if God owns it all, I don't need what you've got, king of Sodom. God owns everything. He is the possessor of heaven and of earth. It seems like Abram 
understood this lesson on God being possessor of heaven and earth. He believed it, he loved it, and he immediately applied it to his life. Saying, if God owns it all, I don't need your stuff. In fact, he even speaks those truths. He, he takes his theology lesson and he preaches it right back to the king of Sodom. Right in verse 22, he says, I've lifted up my hand. He's talking to the king of Sodom and he says, no, I lifted up my hand to the Lord. King of Sodom, listen to me for a moment. Let me tell you about this God. Let me tell you firsthand what he's like. This is, this is your theology lesson, king of Sodom. I'm going to now take what I've learned and teach it to you. He's the most high God and he's the possessor of heaven and earth, not you, king of Sodom. So God decides what I'm going to get, when I'm going to get it, not you. He's putting the king of Sodom in his place. I mean, this is slap down. This is smack down. This is, I'm not going to take the thread. I'm not going to take the sandal. And by the way, the stuff that you have, you're offering to me, it's not yours anyway. It belongs to the God who possesses everything in heaven and on earth. It's amazing. God possesses it all. Go outside and look up at the heavens. I got up early this morning and the stars were brilliant in the sky. In the light of this past, I thought, God, he, he possesses it all. He owns it all. Everything in the heavens. Walk around and, and look at everything you're going to see today on the earth and realize God owns it all. He possesses every last inch of it. He owns it. He controls it. He sustains it. And I think Abraham believed that and it grabbed his heart enough so that he responded to the king of Sodom the way that he did. So I'm reading through this and I'm going, all right, God, so what, how do I engage in this in a way that your word examines my heart and I see what you want me to see? And I think one of the things that came out of it was this. I wonder if I share Abram's perspective regarding my riches. Why are you rich? I mean, we really are rich. I mean, in the scheme of things, right, we're living better than kings of old, and we're rich. Why are we rich? Why are you rich this morning? Well, Abram would say, it's because God possesses the heavens and the earth, and God is blessing you. Is that how we process it? Do you see it that way? I mean, in reality, do you really believe Really believe that God is the one that has blessed you. That God is the one that has made you rich. When you consider all the things that you have, do you say this is all from the hand of the God of heaven, most high, who possesses it all? And then I had this thought. If you don't see the real reason for you having so much today as being God, it will mess up how you think about the needs you have for tomorrow. You connect the dots here. These, this is where I live. I mean, this is like lie in bed anxiety moment reality for me when I think about the connection that's here to my real life. When I'm anxious about tomorrow and God providing for tomorrow, God providing when I'm 90 lying in a bed, sucking my thumb and wetting a diaper or whatever I'm going to be doing at 99, when I think about that, well, what's going to happen in my future? When I think about tomorrow's provision, and if I get anxious, it reveals where I really think I'm getting today's provision. Does that make sense? If I think it's from God most high, who possesses heaven and earth, well, then certainly he can take care of me then. He's taking care of me now. 
But if I think I have what I have now because I'm healthy and I'm able to preach, so I've got a job and I've got a little bit saved and I'm working towards some kind of retirement, therefore I'll be, well, if that's where I'm anchored, I'm going to be anxious about tomorrow because all that's dependent on me. My ability to manage money and know how to invest it and will grocery store still have food and all my circumstances. But if I really believe, oh, no, it's all from God. All of it. Every single blessing I have. Every single position, possession. God gave it to me. He handed it to me. I'm rich because of him. Well, it's all because of him, and he owns everything in heaven and earth. What's to worry about for tomorrow? Nothing. So I feel like this reveals for me where am I really putting my trust and my hope, and where do I really believe all of my needs are being met? Are they being met because of something I've done, or are they being met because of God and what God is doing? second little thing I took away from this is I wonder if I'm more desirous of being rich than I am for God getting credit for what I already have. Is there some kind of connection here between Abram going, I don't need this stuff. I just want God to get glory and praise. If we think more about our material needs or more about the glory of God and wanting to bring him more glory. Where does my mind go throughout the day? Am I willing to give up my rights he had the right to take the stuff, but he said, no, God's glory is more important than me getting my rights. What kind of things do you think you have the right for? I deserve that. I should get this. I've worked hard for it. Right? Or are we thinking, no, what if I don't take my right? Will that somehow bring God more praise if I actually put down what it is I have the right to take? Perhaps there's a lesson in there for us as well. I think we... And this is where I, I was going to bring more specific application, but I wanted the Spirit bring the application for you. How do you wrestle with, rich, with riches? And how do you wrestle with them in a way that shows the faith like Abram had in God by making God's praise a higher priority than getting richer and richer and richer? Well, the story's not over yet. There's a strange ending. Easy to skip over. Verse 24. Why is it there? I will take nothing, Abram says, but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Then this is last sentence. Let Aner, Eskal, and Mamre take their share. Hmm. So why is that there? Who cares? What difference does that make that Abram says, you guys, let them take their share. What, what do we learn from that? What, what is the point of that? What does God want us to see in that? Well, I think the point is these three guys are his allies. These are brothers, these three men, and they're his allies. But it seems that Abram wants to be very clear that he's not going to push his convictions off on them. Do you see that? He doesn't care. If they want to get rich at the hand of Sodom, go for it. That, that's fine. That's, you deal with that conviction. I've got my own. And this is where I'm going, and you have yours, and you go where yours. In fact, I'm not even going to make sure you know I want you to have your stuff. I don't want you to feel any guilt that I'm not taking mine, and you need to go take yours. I mean, there's a whole sermon here, is there not? 
when you feel a conviction for something and then you want everyone to share your conviction and you don't understand why other people aren't sharing your conviction. And let's, why doesn't everybody have the same standard as I have? Right? Abram's like, no. He's got a pretty strong conviction. But he's saying to his three allies, seemingly guys that were semi-close to him, he was with them when the news came of Lot. And he's like, guys, man, this is, this is my, my, my conviction, not yours. You do what you feel God is leading you to do. You do what you think is right. In fact, I want you to take the goods, and that's okay. So I think there's stuff in here for us just to consider as we kind of wrap up this little story, especially maybe as parents even. How does this apply to us as parents, especially as our kids get older into their teen years, as they start to develop their own thoughts about God and their own way of wanting to live? How, how do we interact with them in the same kind of way? Let them know, I have my convictions. I have things that I know are true and things that I'm believing, but I'm not going to shove them off on you. I'm not going to make you have to obey certain things that I think are important. I think this even relates to husbands and wives. Like, as I've gotten older, I wish I had learned these lessons when I was in my 30s, that Elizabeth's her own person, and she's going to have her own convictions, and they may look very different than mine, and that's okay. Husbands and wives, I think we've taken sometimes this whole two-become-one thing a little too far. I think it's good sometimes when Elspeth has a very different perspective on certain things than I do, and for us to learn how to live with those in saying, even though I have a conviction, I really believe this is important. Well, I really don't. What do you do? How do you deal with that? Is there a way to deal with that in a way that you actually can hold your own conviction separately in that area and still move ahead as one? But I think at the end of the day, for Abram, the whole deal was making sure that God got the praise for whatever happened. That really was his bottom line. He wanted to make sure that at the end, all the money, when all the goods were distributed, when all the stuff was done, and the dust settled, and everyone walked away with their things, Abram wanted to be able to stand there and say, I made a pledge to God that anything I get and anything I have will only become from his hands and from no other source. So others can do what they need to do. They have the freedom to do what they want to do. But this is where I'm going. This is where I'm headed. And so I think there's lessons here for us. I think there's lessons for moms and dads. I think there's lessons for us as couples. I think there's lessons for us as disciples of Jesus. And how we think about all the things that God has given us in our lives. God is our most high God. He possesses it all. He's the one that delivers us. And may we want to give him praise with all the stuff we have, with all the stuff that he's given to us. And may we clearly be able to say to others, anything I've got, it's only because God gave it to me. It has nothing to do with me or anything great I've done. Amen? Lots of application here. Stuff to think through. A little harder to wrap my brain around the application for this week. But give it some thought. Read chapter 14 again a couple times this week and discuss it in your, in your small groups. And let, let's see what God does to help us with our perspective of the stuff that we have. Are we going to sing a song? Let's sing a song.